It was well acknowledged that fighting against climate change requires strong cooperation, and even that it would be one field in which we could find some common ground for discussion with the Chinese for some positive cooperation. And uh, with the IRA, the U.S. has uh, signaled that uh, now its main focus is really on the competitive field and that uh, this is now a race for competition for the production of green technologies. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendahl Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Global Trade Series 2023. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendahl Institute. And today's topic is subsidy wars. Is the climate agenda driving a wedge through global trade cooperation? Now, it is impossible these days to have a discussion anywhere in Europe about climate policy and trade without it quickly becoming a conversation about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Last summer, the United States announced roughly 370 billion U.S. dollars in investments, subsidies, and tax credits for green technologies to stimulate America's own green transition. It is climate policy and industrial policy wrapped into one, and it led to immediate concerns in Europe. As Europe was going through a period of very high energy prices, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act was seen to be an extra factor why businesses and industry may be lured away from Europe to the United States, or even potentially undercutting the EU's own Green Deal ambitions. Now, the United States said that the Inflation Reduction Act, IRA for short, was mainly meant to show that America was serious about climate policy and wanted to reduce its dependency on Chinese-sourced climate technologies. But in Europe, U.S. climate policy was seen to have big implications for European competitiveness. The EU now grudgingly felt compelled to respond with a set of measures of its own, primarily a relaxation of state aid rules, in an attempt to convince European green tech firms to stay put. Now, this transatlantic tug-of-war over green technology raises important questions for the future of trade policy in general. How will the EU and the US resolve this green subsidy dispute? What are the broader implications of an increased use of subsidies by the US and Europe for the future of multilateral rules-based trade? And finally, how can trade and the climate agenda go together? So to talk to me about this, I'm joined by two of the best trade experts in the field. Firstly, from Paris, I'm joined by Elvire Fabry. Elvire is Senior Research Fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute in Paris. She's in charge of geopolitics of trade and the rapporteur of the Working Group on EU-China Relations. Her areas of expertise include, amongst other things, EU trade policy, EU-US relations, WTO reform, and changing perceptions of globalization. And secondly, from London, I'm joined by Alan Beatty. Alan is the senior trade writer at the Financial Times, and he writes the Trade Secrets newsletter, sort of a Bible for trade nerds like me. Now, both of you have been on the podcast before. It's great to have you back. 
Obviously, we will focus on the IRA and Europe's response, but I'd also like to broaden our discussion a bit to discuss what this means for the WTO, whether this suggests that rules-based trade is out and subsidy-based trade is in, and how to pursue climate objectives through trade policy. Now, Elvir, perhaps to start with you, let's focus a little bit on the IRA and Europe's concerns. And why are policymakers in Europe worried about the Inflation Reduction Act? And are they correct to be so? Well, I, I think that, first of all, one worrying, worrying thing for the Europeans is the quick shifts from cooperation to com- competition when we address issues about uh, fighting against uh, climate change. It was well acknowledged that fighting against climate change requires some cooperation, and even that it would be one field in which we could find some common ground for discussion with the Chinese for some positive cooperation. And uh, with the IRA, the U.S. has uh, signaled that uh, now its main focus is really on on the competitive field and that uh, this is now a race for competition for the production of green technologies. Of course, the Europeans were had a main concern until the, the IRA passed at the Congress. That was the difference of the, the price in energy, which was a very big concern for com, com, in competition between the European firms and American firms. And the IRA is doing one thing, is amplifying this problem in competition. Now, I think that the worries on the European side are not artificial. They are based on what to be a sort of multiplication of announcements from different European companies during the fall. If you look at the report from the Clean Energy Investing in America, which was published at the end of 22, they already noticed that there were 20 projects of new investments in green technologies in the US, and half of them were coming from foreign firms. And there were already three coming from, from Europe. And this is sort of amplification of the worries that's on another note, the announcement, for example, of BASF considering that it will be continuing to invest in China, but not invest anymore in the EU. It raised the concern that some European companies could have the temptation to move abroad to get the benefits that were offered and, and not only in the US by the the promises of state aid support in the, in the US. But just to add an, uh, another element, there's many concern and criticism on the European side, but I read. I tend to, to consider that it may be a, a very interesting wake-up wake call also for the Europeans because it has also allowed to to pay more attention about the benefits that could be grasped from the development of all those new technologies which will... Uh, represent a big share of economic development in the next years, and that uh, the EU should uh, put itself together to be in a position to grasp a share of this uh, development. Yeah, let's get back to the EU's response in a little bit, but I want to bring Alan in. If if you listen to European policymakers or even European business groups, they, they talk a lot about deindustrialization as one of the potential consequences of the Inflation Reduction Act, that businesses like Basef might move away from Europe. Is there any truth to that to that concern? I mean, you know, de- deindustrialization is something which is a secular trend. It has been going on for a long time. If anything, it's it's less marked in the EU, certainly in certain economies like Germany. 
than it is elsewhere. You know, German manufacturing as a share of GDP, just to take a, an obvious measure, is considerably higher than it is in the US. French manufacturing as a share of GDP, by the way, is almost exactly the same as it is in the US. You must not tell French policymakers this because they're convinced they have a large industrial base which they're which they're eager to protect. Now, the energy shock, is obvious, is, I think, has a lot more to do with this than, than anything else. And if I were them, I would focus not just on do we have industry per se, and particularly not do we have chemicals industry like BASF, but what are we doing in the cutting edge technologies? You know, Now, Europe has lagged, despite its, its alleged green credentials, it has lagged on electric vehicles. It has lagged for a long time. And one thing I would say about the IRA is it is correctly a wake-up call to the EU that they are behind on things like electric vehicles. However, it's not the US with its IRA they should particularly be concerned about. It is China, where not just China, but actually European companies in China, you know, Volkswagen, for example, and indeed American companies in China like Tesla, you know, have been established and competing for, for a long time. So yes, they should be concerned about lagging in particular high-tech areas, Energy prices are part of that, but they're no means the most important part of that. And indeed, subsidies and industrial policy might help with that. But again, I'm not convinced that's the most important part of that. If I had to point at anything that is a concern for Europe and industrialization, it's the extent to which certain sectors and certain countries, by which, of course, I mean the German car industry, has been extraordinarily slow to adopt modern technologies. You know, the German car industry is extremely efficient and it is extremely good at making incremental changes to technologies they've got. Leaping from one technology to another, not so much. And you've seen that recently with, you know, with Germany seeking to delay the sort of phase out of, of conventional engines. So, you know, yes, they should be concerned and yes, they should be uh, about deindustrialization in a particular way. And yes, they should be concerned about subsidies in a particular way. But energy prices and the IRA are taking away our manufacturing is a very sort of simplistic way of looking at it. And then let's look a little bit at Europe's response, because the EU recently, I believe, uh, we're recording this on the 17th of February, yesterday, or 17th of March, I, I should say. Yesterday, the EU presented its net zero industry plan and uh, the Critical Raw Materials Act. And these two policy papers have been billed as the EU's response to the Inflation Reduction Act. It suggests that the EU wants to relax state aid rules to provide a certain degree of subsidies, but by no means, at least my reading is, by no means offsetting the $370 billion that, that the US is making available. So the question arises whether this is, this is enough and or what will it do? Elvira, do you have any, any thoughts on that? I think at this stage, the issue is not so much about the volume of what the EU is putting forward in terms of uh, state aid. And it's, it's mainly based at the moment on available state aid. And the whole issue will be about uh, the next step, which will be uh, the potential decision of the Europeans on the European Sovereignty Fund, which will provide much more financial aid and which will enable the Europeans to, to uh, invest beyond the sector of the green technologies, but all, all the disruptive technologies and uh, in artificial intelligence, biotech and all that. But I think at, at this stage, the issue is much more about the way the European firms will be able to access the state aid, the speed of access to the state aid, the simplification shock on which all this strategy is, is based. And in the end, we, if you look at the IRA, 
there's um, the whole envelope of financial support is not capped, so it can be it can even increase during the next decade, and the Europeans will have to uh, to adjust. But the, the issue is more at, uh, at the moment about building an agreement between the member states while we are really departing from an, a strong orthodoxy on the, the a very stringent framework of the use of state aid and very strict competition policy. So it's uh, the way the European Commission is proposing some temporary state aids. It's also a sort of transitional phase for a more ambitious and a more, or let's say, a more offensive strategy based on state aid. And Alan, what do you think? Is the EU's response to the IRA, what we know of it right now, is it appropriate and or sufficient even? I mean, the very, the very crude one-line way in which I think about this is overall, America has cash and Europe has rules, right? And this has been this has been true in, in, in lots of aspects of response to the climate. So, for example, with carbon and carbon pricing, you know, the, the EU put in a, an emissions trading system, put in a, a rule and a price-based system, and now seeking to equalize that internationally with a carbon border mechanism. The, the Americans, although they did try, the Democrats did try to get this through, get a cap-and-trade system through Congress over many years, completely failed. And so they've now you know, thrown up their hands and say, okay, we aren't going to get a rule basis and we're not going to get a price-based system, but we do have the federal government and we can spend a lot of money. So it's, you know, the approaches are never likely to be the same simply because each side can't actually, even if they wanted to, each side can't actually do what the other one, right? The White House couldn't actually do this on a on a price basis because they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to get it through Congress. Now, in terms of the European response, one of the problems here is that most European rules with regard to state aid and competition have always been focused at the level playing field within the internal market, right? The function of European state aid is to stop the richer economies, Germany and France, out subsidizing the, the smaller and less well-off ones and, and scooping all the investment for themselves. And so they are much stronger. Obviously, they're, they're way, way stronger than any equivalent in the EU, you you could not get the equivalent of the the great tax cut incentive scramble to get the Amazon head second headquarters, you know, placed in their particular state, and that's a very strong impulse. It's got very strong counterweight in within the Commission. You know, member a lot of member states, in some ways, rightly, are still concerned about their competitiveness in this area vis-a-vis Germany rather than vis-a-vis the US. So, relaxing state aid rules administratively it's an easier thing to do because you don't actually have to raise money. But there's always been a resistance to it because of this sense that that will unbalance the internal market. Now, of course, as uh, Elvier says, the, the logic to this is instead of this, you have a Europe-wide approach, right? You have Europe-wide fund. And forgive my atrocious French pronunciation, but as I understand it, the original proposal from Paris was called France Souverain, right? A, a sovereign fund. This got enormous pushback from everyone else because they didn't like the idea of Europe having a sovereign wealth fund. Europe is not a sovereign wealth fund. So it had to be softened to a fond de souveraineté, a sovereignty fund, before it would even be considered. And even now, it's only in an early stage. There's still a lot of pushback. And unhelpfully, some of those member states pushing back against it are the northern states we might be who are actually concerned with with the internal market and they like the idea of internal competition. However, they also tend to be fiscally tri- quite frugal, so they won't actually raise money. 
to spend on an EU-wide basis. I, so I can't imagine sort of, which country you'd be thinking of. Uh, I, I uh, can't. I can't. Um, remind me where you're sitting around. <laughs> but the, <laughs> so there's this sort of mismatch here. There's a transatlantic mismatch in terms of what even the authorities can do, even if they wanted to. And there's an intra-EU mismatch in terms of which countries want to respond in a particular way. So what we end up with is a relaxation of state aid, but it still remains very complicated thing to apply for and some move to a pan-european fund or pan-european process but again quite a complicated and bureaucratic one you compare that with the us where you just rock up and you receive massive tax credits and not just for electric vehicles actually things like green hydrogen are actually much more so is the eu responding particularly well i mean it's not responding particularly coherently and not in the same way but that's because of the internal complications of making policy within the EU more than anything else. Right. And let's switch a little bit to the US side of the of the argument and focus on what the IRA does to international trade. So every trade expert I've talked to says the IRA violates basic international trade rules. And and then the question presents itself, why is the US pursuing a policy that will only further undermine the functioning of the WTO? Why is the U.S. seeking its resort to subsidy measures, which are clearly in violation of either MFN rules or other international legal understandings of of how trade should be done? I would say that it's rather the conclusion of a process than the beginning of, of a new one, because the U.S. have been reluctant in engaging at the level of the WTO for quite a while. We remember in 2019, when Washington blocked the nomination of new judges after the appellate body, the dispute settlement mechanism. And uh, the last ministerial conference of the WTO, where there was no concrete engagement in any WTO reform. And now that the US is really taking Chinese technological progress and leadership in some sectors as a threat, and considering that China is really benefiting more from the WTO system than, than, the, than the US, in a way it is turning its back to WTO rules, but it's not a blow up of the of the system it's rather some sherry picking the objective that the us is not to uh, i mean it's to 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 remain committed to some some basis basic rules of the wto but the pillar of the system uh, non discrimination has been targeted by the ira this is quite worrying not only for europeans which have been advocating for years for more constraining uh, rules at the wto level but because of the domino effect that it could have on some other members of the WTO with sort of a tendency to, to cherry-picking strategy and applying or applying or not or committing to, to those roles and rather be tempted to adopt some local content uh, requirement in the industrial policy. American policymakers will say, like, look, they'll, they'll, they'll agree with you, and, and they'll say, look, the, the WTO has been you know, a bit handicapped over the past couple of years. The climate agenda is actually perhaps even more important than supporting international trade rules. There's a national security incentive to reduce our dependency on on China. So let's not let's not worry too much about what this does to to the WTO. Alan, are those sort of American voices right? Is pursuing the climate agenda more important than preserving the WTO? I mean, the, the first thing I would say is it's important to be to be clear about which part of the IRA you're talking about. There's one part which is very obviously 
WTO incompatible, which is specifically the tax credits with regard to electric vehicles because they have local content provisions in them, right? Even the Americans don't even try and defend those on WTO grounds. A lot of the rest of it are subsidies which are available to anyone producing in the US if they distort trade and you can prove that they distort trade then they may be what they call actionable subsidies, meaning if you can prove they distort trade, then you can put tariffs against them. But they're not straight off on the face of them violating the WTO, right? That's the that's the EV tax credits. And everyone's focused on the EV tax credits, I think, because one, they are an obvious egregious breach of, of WTO law. And two, because this is Europe and they're obsessed with the car industry. You know, but the effect of something like the green hydrogen subsidies, which again could be massive and open ended, and those could be really huge, not because the Americans are going to be, you know, dumping cheap hydrogen into Europe, because hydrogen is, an ex- as I understand it, is an extraordinarily expensive thing to transport. It's just if they create this very, very cheap fuel, which they then divert to their own domestic manufacturing industry, there will be then very cheap manufacturers exported from the US on that basis, which will compete with European manufacturers. And that is harder to get at, right, with regard to, you know, with regard to anti-dumping actions and so forth. So I think it's, I think, I think you need to be clear exactly which bits you're looking at. Now, with regard to the WTO, as Elvia says, absolutely rightly, the Americans have been losing faith in the WTO for a long time for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. The bad one, or I think the one they've taken massively out of proportion, which is why they originally stopped appointing new judges to the appellate body, was things to do with actually their own anti-dumping, and particularly the obsession with steel, and particularly this obsession with a particular methodology of steel called zeroing. Now, I think everyone regarded that, whichever side you take of it, as as hugely disproportionate. But the, the area where I do think they have something of a point and where they teamed up with Europe and Japan was to try and extend the subsidies rules, the subsidies disciplines through this trilateral initiative they had, because they, you know, they don't cover a lot. They were written before China came into the WTO. China has a massive multiplicity of ways of subsidizing companies. There was a series of rulings within the dispute settlement body, just to get technical, define what you what you mean by a public body dispensing subsidies and they ruled quite narrowly which excluded a lot of what you i might regard as subsidies in the chinese system from the disciplines of the wto the americans and the japanese and the europeans spent years talking about this i don't think they ever come up with a proper blueprint for reform even if they had it would have been absolutely dead on arrival at the wto because of course the the chinese would have vetoed it and the same is true for this this talk about a, a new discipline on environmental subsidies so i can see their issue I can see their issue with the WTO. It's not convincing to me that, you know, obviously breaking its rules with things like the EV tax credits is the solution. And I think trade ought to be able to help the struggle against climate change rather than hinder it. And simply saying the WTO is not fit for purpose, but we don't really have a blueprint to to reform it. That's the thing, right? The Americans just steadfastly refuse to come up with the blueprint to reform it. Any blueprint to reform the dispute settlement system, they just say, we don't like it. You've all got to admit that it's wrong and come up with a, a system. So does their, does their critique have some validity? Yes. Do I think they're making it in good faith? Not really. No. It's interesting. And, and you touched upon the issue of subsidies in a WTO context. And I think that's being brought increasingly to the fore because of Inflation Reduction Act, the concerns that we just talked about. Elvia, can you Bring us up to speed about where the conversation inside the WTO might be trending towards in the realm of using climate or trade measures to promote climate objectives, or phrased more specifically, 
I know there are ideas floating around regarding green boxing certain type of subsidies. This is also part of, if I'm correct, also the the trilateral conversations between Japan and the EU and 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 the US hinted at kind of reforming WTO rules about subsidies to to allow certain subsidies to be put in place. Is that a possibility or is that a a fantasy that the WTO could agree on on you know accepting certain types of subsidies to move the climate agenda forward? Well, from inside the WTO, it's un- understandable that all the key actors are trying to to revamp any possibility of negotiation, at least to keep to keep the institution functioning and and providing what it does best. And I think that first of all all what it can do to preserve some transparency in the use of those subsidies, which is already very complex because we know that the notification of subsidies is something that has been uh, very badly implemented in, in the past years. But transparency, dialogue, I mean, the, the, the use of WTO as a forum is important. Now, the prospect of really concrete relaunch of negotiation uh, trying to isolate or trying to, uh, as you as you were mentioning, some more convenient subsidies or some more subsidies that could, could create more, more, more important distortions, trade distortions. I wouldn't be very confident in the very short time. Uh, the mood is more about uh, strategic patience and uh, because without the engagement of the US, which is not the mood in Washington at the moment, it would be quite complex. But having said that, it's right that um, attempting to trying to frame at least the debates with maybe some potential waiver, temporary waivers, considering that it may be necessary to be in a capacity to have the maximum countries engage into uh, decarbonization. That may be the least bad solution, at least to uh, to pave the way for for future negotiations. So, and Alan, if not an, an agreement on green subsidies in the WTO, what else could we expect from the WTO on on advancing the climate agenda? Unfortunately, I think not very much. I mean, in the WTO, it's generally easier to do tariffs than subsidies, right? Because they're more measurable and they're more enforceable. And we couldn't even get an agreement on environmental goods tariffs, which went on for years and years. If I recall correctly, it founded on the EU unconvincingly claiming that bicycles were not a green good, essentially because they wanted to protect the European bicycle industry against the Chinese bicycle industry. Now, if you can't even do that, and remembering all the, the trade battles on solar panels and wind power and all sorts of other things that are related to the Green Revolution... It seems unlikely to me you're going to agree disciplines on this within the WTO. The other issue, just just broaden this out quite a lot, is that you know we sit here in advanced economies saying the climate agenda is enormously important, climate change is enormously important. Generalizing massively, it is not always viewed that way in developing countries. Just to shift institutions for a bit, there's this idea that the World Bank should leverage up and expand its balance sheet and use a lot of that money in climate change. This is something the Americans are pushing quite hard. Some developing countries are actually pushing back against that quite hard and say, look, climate change is something that's created in the rich countries, not by us. That's your problem to solve. We do not want money taken away from spending on health and education. So to say that climate is the overwhelming issue facing all countries in the global trading system 
is not something that resonates in a lot of the world. And for that reason, I think it's going to be difficult to get anything done in the WTO about it. You mentioned other countries outside of the US and, and, and the EU. We just had the meeting between von der Leyen, uh, Commission President von der Leyen and, and President Biden, where they hinted at trying to find modalities to resolve tensions over the Inflation Reduction Act. There is an EU-US task force on the Inflation Reduction Act. We've highlighted the two new policy proposals from the Commission. Say the EU is happy because it gets or guarantees certain access to, say, a number of subsidies on the U.S. side. Where does this leave the rest of the world in terms of moving ahead with the climate transition? Because one of the pieces of criticism that has been levied against the IRA, but also against the EU, is that this is going to create a a broader gap between the haves and the have-nots in terms of those that are able to invest in green tech and the climate transition through subsidies, through bilateral agreements, through carve-outs or trade agreements that enable access to certain subsidies or not, and the others. In other words, we frame the conversation because we're all based in Europe as a, as a transatlantic thing, but you're right to highlight, of course, that the rest of the world thinks about this very differently. Where does it leave them? What what role do they do they play in this conversation about whether subsidies are the future for addressing climate concerns? If you like, we've had a kind of um, a run at this already with vaccines, with COVID vaccines. You may remember, you know, a huge amount of the research because that's where the money is was done in the rich countries, and then in the US, particularly. Actually, I know there was a lot of talk about export bans and so forth in the in the EU, but in the US, there was a huge amount of domestic procurement done but focus very much on the American market. And one of the things that's quite interesting about the IRA as well is that you know we assume at some point there will be some knock-on effect to the world market. But at the moment, it's very much about the American market. It's very much about you know plants based in America supplying the American market. And, you know, not being entirely insulated, but that it's, it's not focused on the world market and it's certainly not necessarily focused on tech transfer onto the world market. What I think, again, will be interesting is what China does here, because China has this history with a lot of technologies and solar, solar panels and, and other things of heavily subsidizing them, getting good at them, getting them cheap, and then exporting them. Now, you know, developing countries, other developing countries may not be super keen on that because they prefer to be manufacturing them themselves, but they would rather have subsidized EVs or subsidized other green tech from China than have to build it up themselves or you know, especially since they're not getting tech transfer from the US. So I think that dimension, I think that the emerging market dimension of the IRA and indeed Europe's response is largely missing at the moment. I like the parallel that Alan made with the vaccines because the, there was a whole issue about uh, producing vaccines and giving access to third countries to those vaccines. And in a way, when you look at the European response to the IRA, the whole idea is precisely to be in a position to export those technologies, not only produce them to use them in the, in the EU, but really to sell them to, to the rest of the world. If we take the big picture of this competition that we are in now between the three blocks uh, about the production of green technologies, in a way we can consider that it would will allow to decrease the prices of those technologies uh, if there's really peaceful competition and that it might be interesting for the third countries. But we have the worry, the increasing worry also that the geopolitical rivalry between the US and China might bring into this discussion also the 
the increasing threat of export restrictions or the fact that the, the U.S. may be tempted to provide access to those technologies to some reliable partners or condition the access to those technologies to some alignments on other U.S. objectives. And that may be much more complex for third countries to secure access to, uh, or it will have implications in the way they, uh, they are submitted to the conditions of uh, one or the other blocks. I have a final question for you, which is to what extent is the IRA and the, the discussion that we've been having over the past 30 minutes, is that going to be symptomatic for discussions that we're going to be having in other policy areas connected to trade? Is the issue of subsidies and subsidy provision and subsidy competition going to be a new feature of the global trade environment? And um, phrased differently, are subsidy wars, if you will, are they, are they the future? Well, the green tech are a big piece of this uh, new strategy on the U.S. side. But the next one, the, the next issue coming about increasing U.S. capabilities in artificial intelligence, in biotech, in, I mean, the, the whole list is already set and is related to national security concerns in Washington. Again, that's why I think it's interesting that uh, on the European side, they have this ambition of negotiating a European sovereignty fund, uh, which would provide much more capabilities to develop also manufacturing, not well, not only for manufacturing, but innovation, innovation capabilities and, and, and manufacturing capabilities to be able also to be, to be part of this race. I mean, you can obviously make a case for it as, as obviously as the, things like AI and, and biotech and so on, where you can make the same kind of case theoretically as for green tech, namely these are cutting edge technologies, they have security implications, there is a first mover advantage, there are lots of externalities that can be captured by state intervention. I do wonder at one point, at which point money starts running out, or at least the, the enthusiasm people for spending money running out. Let's remember that the IRA very, very, very nearly didn't happen. Right, it was one senator in West Virginia who, as far as I can tell, was lured by the idea of doing old-fashioned fossil fuel energy security with Canada. That, that actually got this, actually got this through, and then got the, the subsidies extended to, to outside the U.S. Right, and you can imagine when, if if Congress, you know, becomes entirely controlled by the Republicans, they'll revert to their previous thing of, of refusing to authorize spending as long as it's by a Democratic president in the EU because there's so much money has been spent on other things, such as energy subsidies, right, mm -hmm. to come yeah. cope with the energy, which way in excess of any of this uh, actual green tech investment to cushion households from the effect of the war. The, you know, the money just isn't there. It's not there at an EU-wide level. And I'm not convinced, even if you relax state aid, it's going to be there at a, a member state level either. So can you make an argument for it? Yes, but that's going to require voters and taxpayers continuing to be sufficiently concerned and indeed sufficiently concerned specifically about China that they're going to continue spending. But globally, doesn't it set a precedent that other countries can simply dish out subsidies because the US and, and Europe are doing it? Yeah. I mean, I certainly think if you're talking about things like WTO litigation, certainly any country that feels like having a go is going to be now feel less constrained by WTO rules than it was before. I think it's going to be more constrained simply by how much money it has, particularly with interest rates, much higher than they were. And whether it actually thinks that money is well spent or whether it can compete or not. Elvira, any final thoughts on this? Well, if you, if you look at the um, net zero 
industrial act that was proposed by the European Commission yesterday. And you see that the, the objectives are fixed for 2030, so very, very short time. It's past tomorrow. You see that they're trying to, to, to create some confidence in some very short-term results because we, have, we will have to compensate precisely what Alan was mentioning, the high cost of those public investments and increasing debt. The whole question is about the, the concrete benefits that this new market can, can provide in, in the short term. You know, just one, just one thing on this. If we're going back to this, it, it sounds like you're going back to a sort of Cold War, Cold War One type thing, right? Where countries like the US were spending what three, four percent, five percent of GDP on defence, mm-hmm. you know, and on aerospace because they were genuinely con- scared of the Soviets, and and people were, you know, people were prepared to to pay for that. I'm not convinced people are so concerned about China that they're prepared to pay a lot more for subsidies into technologies which they may or may not regard as making them more secure in the medium term. Or which are going to create global gluts at a certain point that we come to deplore, as you're kind of seeing in the semiconductor Well, absolutely, particularly in the the sort of less high-end chip industry. You know, the chip industry, to some extent, not entirely, but to some extent, is becoming, has become a bit like those heavily subsidized industries of of the past, like steel and shipbuilding and so on, right? Where you go on overcapacity and subsidy cycles because everyone has to keep subsidizing or feels they have to keep subsidizing. And we will return to the issue of semiconductors and supply chain security in another episode of the Global Trade Series. But unfortunately, this is where we're going to have to leave it because this is all we have time for today. Thank you very much to Elvire Fabry and Alan Beatty for joining me and for sharing their insights. This has been a very rich conversation. Please check out our other conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series at www.aig.com GTS or access them through the platform you usually use to get your podcasts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, SEPRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.